So today, of course, in uh, Seattle is a day of deep disappointment and grief. After watching two complete baseball games yesterday afternoon, 18 innings of baseball, our Mariners have been sent packing for the winter. So let's just all get it out of our system right now. Whatever, whatever sound comes to you in this moment, just let it out. Oh. All right, good. That's out of the way. Now, that's compounded for me because, you know, I'm a lifelong Dodger fan, and we lost to the best farm team in baseball last night, the San Diego Padres. And so we're out of the playoffs as well. So it's deep disappointment. So Brian, who I know is a Dodger fan, let's together. Oh, see, it feels better, doesn't it? Giving some expression to that. Today we're going to be talking about money. I'm warning you ahead of time. And when I was thinking about money, I remember reading a newspaper article in the Seattle Times way back at the beginning of December. They did a series of articles on tipping. Did anyone see those articles on tipping? And it was talking about the confusion that's ensued since the pandemic about how tipping works. Now, tipping used to be somewhat normal. You'd go to a restaurant, you'd sit down, you'd have service, and then you would leave a tip. In other words, it was a, a way of acknowledging good service that was rendered to you by your server. Well, during the pandemic, we recognized that there were a lot of people working and doing things to support people in pandemic, like gig workers or the folks that brought you, you know, DoorDash or Uber Eats or Grubhub or whatever it might have been, food delivery. And so tipping has become complicated. So much so now, pretty much anywhere you go and any transaction you engage in that deals with service has a tip involved. So every time you go to the coffee shop, you stand there and you order your coffee. Someone's going to make it and hand it to you. They turn that magic tablet around and you're confronted with 15, 18, 20, 25% as the tip. And it's, it's, it's a little overwhelming. And to be honest, it provokes a, little, a, a bit of anxiety within us, doesn't it? That you're standing there face to face with the human being who's going to receive the tip. And if you don't give enough, what are they going to think of you? If, if you give too much, then what do they expect next time? And oh, it hurts to think about all these different ways we have to engage in transactions all the time. This is compounded by food delivery, for example, in which before your order is even placed and delivered, you have to decide how much you're going to tip the person who is driving the food to you. So you can understand the anxiety we face in my house because we have a really long driveway that you have to walk up in order to get to our house to deliver food to our front door. So we think, okay, well, we need to tip for that. But what if I don't tip enough? Then they see the tip before they make and deliver my food. What could happen to my food on the way here if I don't tip them enough? But may, it's just complicated. And this article in the Seattle Times was about the back and forth all of us are facing in all of these new transactions that we're having to engage in all the time. And those transactions are strange and awkward 
and seem to not make very much sense to us. So we're beginning a series of messages today that's going to last for a few weeks. It's called the Abundance Dilemma. And we're going to deal with some dilemmas like the anxiety around tipping a little bit today. But we're going to talk about a number of other questions when it comes to the abundance dilemma. Like questions like, how much is really enough? What is money good for? How can we become more grateful? And today's sermon, which is aptly titled, Why is Money So Hard to Talk About? This is your warning. We're going to talk about money. So why is money so hard to talk about? There's lots of reasons that make money hard to talk about. Let's talk about a few of them. Uh, The first, I think, is that money creates transactional thinking. So we spend a majority of our time using money as a transaction. We give money and we get something for it. Whether it's a tip, like services rendered, or whether it's for our groceries or making your mortgage payment or your rent payment, you transact money and with that transaction comes a result. Transactional thinking is the great temptation surrounding money when it only exists as a I give this, you give that type of scenario. This man that comes to Jesus in Matthew 19 is in the midst of a transaction. And the transaction he's in is he comes to Jesus and he says, what thing must I do to inherit eternal life. That sounds a bit like a transaction to me. Notice thing, not things, thing, singular. So the man imagines that there's one thing that he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And he's going to ask Jesus, who's this novel new teacher, because maybe Jesus is going to say something different than what he's already heard about that. Maybe he's trying to cover his bases. Maybe he's trying to make sure that he has any loose ends tied up, who knows why, but he asks Jesus, what's the thing I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him a very simple answer. Well, keep the commandments. Jesus doesn't give him an answer different than any other person would have probably given him in that day and age in the Jewish community. Jesus talks about, why do you keep calling me good? God is one kind of making reference to the Shema, which is a, the essential creed of Judaism in Deuteronomy 6. And then he says, just keep the commandments. Come on, this isn't complicated. But it's this transactional way of thinking that's kind of captivated this conversation between the man and Jesus. And it's going to go to some deeper questions in a minute. But let's just start with the temptation of the transaction. How many transactions do you suppose you're in with money this week? Pick a number. Dozens, yeah? I mean, there's a lot. Even today, you're going to have a number of transactions with money. All right? Dozens of transactions, perhaps, with money. My day started with a transaction with money. My Starbucks I go to every Sunday opens at 5.30 in the morning. I'm one of their first customers. So even before I get to this church, I have had a transaction, and it's one of the most important transactions I will have all day. I give you money, you give me caffeine. It's a very simple transaction. But when we're used to always talking about our money in the context of transaction, just like this man has come to Jesus, always talking about his relationship with God into the transaction, then it becomes difficult when we step into this spiritual or faithful place. 
How do we not bring all of that transactional baggage with us when we come into our spiritual life, our relationship with God? It leads to so many uh, deformities of the spiritual life of those who follow Jesus. They treat God like a cosmic bellhop. I'll give you this, God, and you give me that. It creates this transactional way of thinking. If I like the songs we sing in church, I'll put more in the offering plate. If I like them less, I don't. None of you do that, do you? Of course not, none of you do. It was a common ploy in churches often to put the sermon before the offering. Do you understand now why that was? Think about it. Let it sink in for a minute. Transactional thinking is dangerous because it leads us into a place of somehow believing that if we just do something, if we just pay for something, if we just transact something, that we get something from God. Is God short of cash? No. So God doesn't need the cash. God's not short on it. So what we begin to learn, even at the very beginning of this encounter of Jesus and this man, is that the need to give is based on the need of the giver to give, not based on the need of the recipient to receive. And we're going to explore that more as we go along. It's based on the need of the giver to give, not the recipient to receive. So here's some questions to wonder about. Questions you might want to wonder about later this week. What is your own need to give? Is that need usually triggered by a transaction that needs to happen? Or is something else happening that causes you to sense a need to give? And how might you use money this week outside of a transaction? Think for a moment. How could I use money this week outside of a transaction? And what might that look like for you? It doesn't have to be a lot of money. It could be a little bit of money. It doesn't matter. How could it happen outside a transaction? Now, let's talk about another thing happening in this story that's another reason why money is hard to talk about. Money often fosters a, a false sense of security. This man that's come to Jesus approaches him from the standpoint of entitlement. We learn by the end of the story we heard read this morning that the man is not only rich, but he's also young. So uh, this story is often called the story of the rich young ruler, even though Matthew never calls him a ruler. That's in another gospel. He's just rich and he's young. Now in this day in the, the first century Palestine, for you to be wealthy meant you were blessed by God. For you to not be wealthy means, well, you weren't as blessed by God. Money was a sign of, a, of anointing or blessing. So wealth, property, a household that was large was a sign that God had blessed you. So the, the strange twist in the story comes after the text we read, it's in the next verses after, that Jesus looks at his disciples and says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you see why all the disciples then it said they were amazed at this teaching? In other words, their minds were blown by what Jesus said. You see why their mind is blown? They've been raised their entire life to believe that if you had wealth, if you had status, if you had all those things, God had blessed you. And Jesus just told you that if you have any of those things, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus took their whole world and turned it upside down on them. Now, Jesus goes on to elaborate that there's always possibility, and we're going to learn some of what's possible 
based in this story right here. So if you're a rich person today, don't count yourself out yet. There's still hope. There's still hope. It provides a a false sense of security from the standpoint that the, the person who's come to Jesus comes to him from a point of entitlement, a point of status, being young and rich. The combination of the words young and rich is important because it's implied that his riches were not his own. He probably inherited them in some fashion or form. So he's not only rich but young, and much of the wealth he probably has was unearned by him. It was earned maybe by his father or some other way in which he received those monies. Now, notice the second question he asks. The first question is, what thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus says, uh, keep the commandments. Then he asks a second question. Which ones? It's a delicious question, isn't it? Which ones should I keep? And so Jesus says, well, the Ten Commandments. So he quotes off a bunch of the Ten Commandments to him. And the ones Jesus selects are the Ten Commandments that are in relationship to how we live with one another. Like, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. But there's one commandment Jesus leaves out of that list. And it's this. You shall not covet. That's the one commandment he leaves out. Because that's actually the crux of the problem. You ever notice that when uh, we as human beings often talk about money, we talk about it in comparative terms? Like, um, are you paying more for gasoline today than you did a year ago? According to the sticker at the gas pump, I'm led to believe that the President of the United States is entirely responsible alone for that problem. (laughs) We talk about money in comparative terms all the time. We talk about it in relationship to A to B. Are you paying more or less right now for things? Do you have more or less than your neighbors? You drive down your street, and what kind of cars are parked in front of people's houses? It's always a comparison and contrast, and this is sometimes why money is hard for us to talk about. Because if we were to talk about it, then we might know where we stand in relationship to other people. And so we don't talk about it. Because that's not information we really want to know, is it? Nor do we really want to know where we stand in relationship to others. Because we may think what we have is giving us security until we find out that somebody has more than what we have and they might have more security than we do, so we should want what they want so we can be more secure like they are. Thou shalt not covet. You see the one thing Jesus leaves out in the conversation? Because that's at the heart of of the very issue Jesus is trying to drill into just a little bit. So often we gauge our financial well-being relative to the benchmarks set by others instead of the benchmark that God has set for us. And look at what the accumulation of wealth has done to us. Look at the psychological, sociological damage that's happened to us because of the comparative accumulation of wealth. So here's another wondering for you. How has money functioned as a barometer of security? And where does security come from and how does money help? I ask that question a little tongue-in-cheek, by the way. How does money help? It may not help at all. Hmm. Let's talk about maybe a third reason money is 
hard for us to talk about is because money reveals what matters to us. So something interesting happens in this conversation between the man and Jesus. Jesus hears his response, which commandments, and he lists off a bunch of the Ten Commandments, and then the man responds with an incredible question. And the question is, what am I lacking? Now that Greek word in Matthew for lacking is the inverse of the word for complete. So he could say, how am I not complete? That word for complete is also the word for perfect in the New Testament. So there's very much a way in which this guy is looking Jesus straight-faced right in the eye and saying, how am I not perfect? He says, I've kept all those commands, Jesus. How am I not perfect? Can you imagine the hubris, the kind of pride it would take, the kind of entitlement you'd have to have to look Jesus square in the eye and say, so what am I lacking? I mean, really. Money reveals what matters to us. So then Jesus now has got the question he's been waiting for. And then he tells the man, I want you to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then your riches in the kingdom of heaven will be great and come and follow me. That last part's really important. The only other time in Matthew's gospel where that formulation of words happens, come and follow me, is when Jesus called his original disciples. So there are some scholars who believe that in this text, Jesus is actually inviting him to become one of his close disciples. And what happens in the story? It says the man went away because he was, fill in the blank, wealthy. So Jesus gives him a, a, a choice. And the choice is, is that you sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me, or keep what you have and walk away. And so what does he choose to do? You can say it, it's all right. He walks away. He walks away. See, this is the core of the matter, and this is why money is hard for us to talk about, because it reveals what matters to us. In asking this question, we get to the core of what mattered to this man. What mattered to him more was his wealth, not the following of Jesus. Mm, it hurts. And it hurts because a quick look at our own calendar and our own bank account will reveal what matters to us. And this is why it's hard to talk about. Because if we talked about it, people would know what we really cared about. And that's getting a little too close to home. That's getting a little too tight with us to know what we really value, what really matters to us. That on the ground, in our behaviors, in our time and in our money, what we really care about. And we'd rather no one know that. As a matter of fact, we are so inculcated into holding that information tight that sometimes we think that God doesn't even know that. Friends, Jesus said something important about this. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if our heart is with God, that's where our treasure will be, right? But if our heart is not with God, that's where our treasure will be. So look at the 
rich young man. Where was his heart? His heart was with his possessions, and so that's, of course, where his possessions were, his wealth. Jesus is simply offering him an invitation to say, how about you took your wealth and placed it in the heart of God and look at what might happen? You know, it, this is interesting because the Bible is filled with stories, filled with stories of people of great wealth who use them for great purpose. In the very much the same way, we are not required as Christians to sell all we have and give it to the poor in order to be Christian. So don't get lost in what Jesus is trying to get at here. What Jesus is trying to name loud and clear is this, is that if there is any obstacle between us and him, it must be removed. It must be removed. Now, that could look like a lot of things. That could look like cash. That could look like time. That could also look like, for example, the fears and inadequacies we carry somehow believing that God couldn't do anything in us or through us. That becomes a barrier. It, it could be all sorts of things that come between us and our discipleship. And Jesus invites us to remove those. Money reveals what matters to us. So here are some more wonderings for us, some more questions to think about. Based on how you spend time and money, what's most valuable to, valuable to you? What small shift could you make this week toward better values? The last thing I think happening in this story that's important for us to, to look at carefully is this, is that money brings responsibility to us. So the young man in the conversation does not understand the connection between his wealth and discipleship. This is the connection he cannot make. So he treats this notion of following Jesus here and his wealth here and Jesus comes along and he erases the line between the two so that there's no way really to separate discipleship from wealth. They're designed to work together. They're designed to be in synergy with each other. One works with the other for a purpose that God has called forth. That's the kind of responsibility. He cannot see his money as a benefit to his discipleship. He sees it separately. Jesus erases that line. So keeping our money separate helps us evade responsibility. Money's hard to talk about, isn't it? You all are very quiet this morning. It's hard to talk about. But see, that responsibility is a double-edged sword. It's not just oh gosh, we're responsible, that's terrible, what are we going to do? Wring our hands, oh Lord, help us, yes. But there's another part of this. Remember, what about all those stories in Scripture of how those who had great wealth employed it for the use by God and amazing things happened through it? People like Lydia, people like others in the New Testament that enjoyed great wealth and deployed it for the use of the gospel and how lives were changed by that. What kind of value comes? There is a place in the kingdom of heaven for rich people. I didn't get struck down. Because Jesus invites those of great wealth and those of no wealth at all to fully give themselves over to him in discipleship 
and that everything we have belongs to him. This is a, a, a leap that the rich young man cannot make. He refuses to take responsibility for his wealth by keeping it away from his discipleship. He quarantines it separately, and it shall not be spoken of. But what's most betraying is the man starts with what question? What thing must I do to receive eternal life? Do you see how his question is self-focused and self-initiated? Whose eternal life does he care about? The person next to him? No. Whose eternal life does he care about? His own. And so the danger here is that all of his wealth, all of his capacity, all of his agency is drawn into himself. And that he cannot see how God might be inviting him out of that space to give and share with others. When we avoid the conversation about money or stewardship or generosity, we lose an opportunity. We lose it. This is hard to talk about, and as a witness to that, let me just share a quick story. Um, A month or two ago when I first came to the church, I kept a practice with our leadership team that I've kept with all of the leaders and all of my churches I've ever served over the years. At the end of one of our leadership team meetings, I told my leadership team exactly how much money I give to this church. And I'll just say, it was awkward. There's a couple people on our leadership team in the room. (laughs) They know. It's awkward. We've never had the pastor tell us how much money he gives to the church. Part of the reason we do that, I hope, is a little bit apparent in the preaching of the sermon, I hope, that that there's got to be an authenticity and an openness about this. I want our leadership team to know the way in which I'm invested in the life of this church, that Bettina and I have prayed and thought and said, this is how we're going to support the work of God through this church. It doesn't matter what the amount is. What matters is that I'm accountable to the leadership team for that relationship. That's why I tell them. And I'm also trying to make money a little easier to talk about. Because one thing our leadership team knows and will never forget, that every single dollar this church has to use for mission and ministry was given to it by people who believe they are giving to God. And that is a huge responsibility to be good stewards So there's a moment in our life when it clicks. And over the next few weeks as we talk together about money, we're going to have a lot of time to think about this. And I promise you, I promise you, you're going to laugh. You're going to smile. We're going to have fun as we talk about money. Because part of the goal is to eliminate the stigma and fear around it. That we want to have a life-giving relationship with our money so God can use all of us to change lives. The vision of this church is to love people, connect to Jesus, and serve the world. That happens, friends, when we give of our life to God, including our money. The most focused topic in Jesus' ministry that he spoke on was love. You'll never guess what number two was. Money. Wealth possessions. And so it wouldn't be right for us as a church to not talk about money. So we're going to talk about our dilemma with it. And again, I promise you, 
we're going to have a good time with it. And part of that good time is realizing what money can do when it's released for a righteous purpose. Uh, 2023 is the uh, 30th anniversary next year of one of the most important films of all time. And it's a film about a man named Oscar Schindler. Oscar Schindler was a a Czech uh, who lived in um, Austria for a period of time, lived in Switzerland for a period of time, and he became part of the Third Reich and the Nazi regime. And um, he was a businessman and industrialist. He was also a philanderer. He was corrupt. He was a womanizer. There's lots of stuff about Oscar Schindler that didn't make the film. But one of the ways the Nazis employed him was by operating a factory that produced goods and services to support the Nazi war machine. And so as Schindler uh, began, began to operate that factory, what he did is he employed Jews to work in the factory because those Jews, had they not worked in his factory, would have been shipped off to a concentration camp and ultimately been killed. And so what Schindler discovered over time is that if he expanded the work of his factory and he accumulated more wealth, he could hire more and more Jewish workers to come into his factory, thus saving them from going to a concentration camp. And even though he engages in this practice for several years of hiring Jewish people, basically buying them from the Nazis so that they could work in his factory, Schindler eventually puts together the power of his money and what his money could do. And so he tried to reclaim as many lives as he could. But still yet, he doesn't have a breakthrough until the very end. So shortly before the the allies come and liberate the ground where the factory that Schindler ran existed upon, Schindler decided to leave and left the Jews there in operation of the factory. And it's as he leaves, and Spielberg does a wonderful job of this in his masterpiece of film, is depicting the moment when Oscar Schindler finally makes the connection between his money and life in a Jewish context. And it's a rich moment that is depicted beautifully. And so there's a scene at the end where Schindler is talking about what he could have done with his money had he known its power all along. And so instead of trying to uh, come back to finish the sermon after you see it, I'll just let you see it and let that be the sermon. I didn't do enough. 
did so much. This car. Oh good, what about this car? Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. This is gold. Two more people. You would have given me two for at least one. You would have given me one. One more. One more person. Person stand for this. I could have got one more person. And I didn't. Let's pray together. Lord, our money has great capacity. Our money has the capacity in in your hands to save lives, to make disciples, to change eternities. And so God, help us just for a moment, not so much to, to dwell on maybe how we haven't used money well, but to imagine just for a moment how our money and our time could shift and change realities for so many and for ourselves. So God, teach us how to give, not because people need it, but because you need us to give. You require of us to be givers. And show, show us, God, in these troubled days what it means for us to practice a generosity of spirit that is remarkable. We seek to bring together our discipleship and our wealth. Show us, God, how to not keep them separate, but to bring them together for something far beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine. This we pray today in the mighty name of Jesus, who can find a way to get a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Amen. Thank you.